peace for our time. That's what the English Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared on September the 30th, 1938. Upon his return from meeting with the German Chancellor Adolf Hitler. Germany had recently invaded Czechoslovakia and Britons were worried at the prospect of another war. And so it was an apparent success when Minister Chamberlain returned home reporting that peace would reign. Sadly, however, you know the story, it was not to be. Germany invaded Poland just a year later, inaugurating World War II and the deaths of more than 50 million people. Peace is elusive, isn't it? We all want it. We want it amongst neighboring countries. We want the threat of war and invasion to die down. We want it amongst neighboring neighbors. We don't want bickering and fighting about dogs and fences and leaf blowers at 8 a.m. Of course, we want it in our own families. We want it in our own hearts. No more divorce, no more abuse, no more hatred. How can we achieve such peace? Neville Chamberlain tried appeasement. It didn't work. Others have tried conquest. Uh, Still others, strategic deterrence. These might obtain peace for a time. But the reality is that conflict returns. How can you enjoy lasting peace? This morning we continue in our third Advent sermon entitled Anticipating Advent. That's the series name. Uh, In the previous weeks, we've been focusing on the Lord's promises to his people to send a deliverer, a savior. And this morning we turn to Isaiah chapter 9. So let me encourage you to turn there now. Isaiah 9 will be in verses 1 to 7. Written around 700 BC, Isaiah's prophetic ministry was to the city of Jerusalem and to the kings there. It was during his ministry that the Lord warned both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom that he would bring a foreign menace upon them if they continued in their unrepentance and sin. The northern kingdom was especially rebellious. They didn't repent of their sins. And so the Lord raised up the nation of Assyria to come and invade from the north as a form of judgment for Israel's faithlessness. And so it's in the context of this coming invasion that we come to Isaiah 9. Uh, We're not going to have any distinct subsections here in uh, the first seven verses. We'll simply kind of walk through the passage verse by verse. Uh, The main idea of our passage is simply this. The Lord will give joy, peace, and justice to his people through the birth of a baby boy. The Lord will give joy, peace, and justice to his people through the birth of a baby boy. So look with me, beginning Isaiah 9 in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Well, our passage begins in verse one, but really it's actually meant as a contrast with the ending of chapter eight. Uh, There the Lord is describing the afflictions of those who turn away from his word and instead seek for spiritual guidance elsewhere from necromancers and mediums. So so just look at the last verse or look at 8.22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is referring to the spiritual and physical condition of all of those who refuse to take the Lord at his word, who instead turn to false religion for truth. They will be in gloom and in darkness. But, but then contrast that with chapter 9, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And so there's this contrast being set up. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in these latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So do you notice there's this change? Zebulun and Naphtali were were two of the most northern tribes of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And, And this meant that when the Assyrians invaded from the north, Well, they were the two tribes that took the brunt of the Assyrians' wrath. Uh, They were the ones who got the initial contempt, as it were, the initial gloom and darkness, the initial judgment from God for their sins. But in the latter time, the land will no more be in gloom or anguish. It will be glorious. The Lord will take away their contempt. So we should conclude two things from verse 1. First, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 9.1. Okay, so for the previous two weeks, if you're here, I kept you in suspense, the whole sermon. Who's going to be the snake crusher? Genesis 3.15. Who's going to be the seed of the woman? And then at the end of the sermon, it's Jesus. Okay, who, the Lord is going to shepherd Israel, but it's going to be David, his son, who's going to shepherd Israel. Who is this shepherd? Okay, so I'm just going to, bottom line up front, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 9. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 9 as we read in Matthew's gospel when he begins his ministry in Capernaum, that is in Galilee. Uh, So Isaiah 9 is ultimately about the birth 
of the Lord Jesus as the coming king who comes to remove our gloom and our anguish, our contempt and our darkness. And so the second thing we need to realize is that God's plan all along was not just to save one nation of people. It wasn't just one ethnicity, the Jews, that God was about. Here in the Old Testament, we see that the Lord intended to make glorious. That is to to reveal his glory and then to conform those people into the image of that glory. He intended to make glorious Galilee of, what does it say? The nations. It's the same word as Gentile in the New Testament, ethne. It refers to everyone in the world who's not Jewish. That is most people on planet earth. And thus we see that the Lord, even as he worked in and through Israel, always had plans for beyond Israel. His goal was to reach all the nations, even the Nung people in Vietnam, even people in Bedford, Massachusetts, with the gospel. Uh, Praise God that Jesus brought the light of the gospel to Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee, and he's brought it here to undeserving sinners such as us. Through Christ's incarnation, we see light. That's the fur- furthermore what we see in verse two. It reads, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. You know, in these next few verses, Isaiah gives us a poetic description of the salvation event. I wonder if you noticed back in the Matthew quote, how it was specifically Jesus' preaching that, got, that brought the light. So Jesus goes to Capernaum, he goes to Galilee of the nations, and he preaches the kingdom. He preaches to repent. It was the good news, the gospel going out, that was the dawning of first light on a cold and dark morning. And so it is today. You, you see this light shining in a dark place through the preaching of the gospel. This is the testimony of every Christian. All of us are born dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us are born as children of the darkness. To use Isaiah's language, we walked in it. We dwelt, we sat in it, we were content in it. We weren't trying to escape or get out of the darkness. We didn't know anything other than darkness. It was our home and our natural state And we were happy to stay there. And then what happened? Well, then we we implored the light to come to our land. Then we worked really hard to earn the light's presence in our heart and lives. Is that what it says? No. It, It says that we were going about our dark business, doing our dark deeds, when all of a sudden light appeared. Uh, The Lord Jesus appeared in our life and in our hearts. God spoke to us and light and life appeared for the very first time. This is always how it's been with God's people. So for example, when the Lord calls Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of faith, you might think, well, you know, for the Lord to make all these really great promises that from you will come a great nation, I'll give you land, seed, and blessing. Abraham was probably a really upright guy seeking the Lord. That's why God called him. Except in Joshua 24, we read, long ago, this is the Lord speaking, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took 
your father Abraham. Friends, Abraham didn't do anything to deserve the appearance of light in his life. Or consider the apostle Paul. He was just on his merry way, persecuting Christians, going from Jerusalem to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians. And then, boom, the lights came on, right? The Lord Jesus literally appeared to him. For those in Zebulun and Naphtali, for those in Galilee of the nations, for Abraham and Paul, and every person who has ever beheld God's light and salvation, none of us took the initiative. It was not fundamentally that we sought God out, but that he sought us out. You see, we were in deep darkness, and yet the Lord, because of his great love, he revealed himself and his glory to us. And we, for the first time, we saw. It is as Charles Wesley's greatest hymn, perhaps, puts it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, referring to creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friend, how do you know if you have been numbered among the saints of light? How do you know if you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son? Well, it's if you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If that light has reached your heart, if you've trusted in him as the one who brings you out of the gloom of sin and the darkness of death, well, then the light has indeed dawned. As our Lord himself states in John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you would be transferred from dark to light, you need not work your way there. You need only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Returning to Isaiah 9, this is good news, right? That you know, we were in darkness, light comes on. What should be our response? We look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. I mean, it's only natural that when God solves our biggest problem, we're happy about it. Uh, our biggest problem is that we're born dead in the darkness of sin. We're alienated from God and from one another. We don't know the truth. We're headed for hell. We have no hope. We're suffering the gloom and anguish our own sins deserve. And yet in spite of that, the Lord speaks light into our hearts, shows us the beauty and glory of Christ. He causes us to believe in him. He transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved and righteous and glorious son, a peace-filled kingdom, how can you be indifferent about that? Friends, this should provoke joy in you. Uh, what trials are you experiencing today? 
What afflictions and difficulties and uncertainties await you tomorrow or this afternoon? I don't know the difficulties you face. But friend, I do know that if you are trusting in Christ, you always have a reason to rejoice. And it's not a small reason to rejoice, right? We can all look for small reasons to rejoice. It's like a really big one, right? Like, oh, yippee, I got paper clips at work, rejoice. No, like this is a really big deal. We were enslaved and in bondage. I didn't even know it. I was an orphan and alone. And then unsought for and in total surprise to me, the Lord of the land adopted me into his family at great cost to himself. He showered all his love and affection on me, gave me myriads and myriads of brothers and sisters and has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. Friends, there is no better news. There is no higher reason for rejoicing. You won the lottery. Money won't calm your soul. It won't pair your relationships. Well-behaved children will eventually disappoint you. A job, you might lose it. Your health will fade. All the other good news in life, they will fade. The circumstances of our lives, if we put our joy in those, they will certainly disappoint us. And so if you are looking for a reason to rejoice today, don't make it your 401k. Don't make it your family or your relationships, but put it in this, that God has showed his abundant, rich in mercy, over the top, overflowing love in the person of his son. This should move you to joy. I, I also love the beginning of verse three. I think it's really interesting. It says, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. It seems that the numerical increase of God's people leads to the increase of that same people's joy. You know, it's kind of what we saw last week in Luke 15, where one sinner repenting leads to lots and lots of happiness in heaven. Uh, brothers and sisters, if you know this salvation and this light, one of the chief ways we experience this joy is by inviting others into it and seeing them believe and experience that light and joy themselves. Uh, let's pray that the Lord would add to our number, add to our number those who are coming from darkness into light through the gospel of God's grace. And then in verses four and five, we get a further reason for this joy, namely deliverance from one's enemies. You see that in verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. In America, for those of us who have lived in relative peace and prosperity, I'm guessing it is hard to imagine the relief and gladness that would come from having your oppressors defeated. Uh, yet think, for instance, of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. Uh, the Lord delivers them. They get on the other side of the Red Sea. Their enemy has finally been vanquished. What's the very first thing they do? They sing for joy. Exodus 15, the song of the sea. Or consider how African-American slaves reacted to the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, freeing all those enslaved in southern states. As the former slave, Frederick, Frederick Douglass, described it, the scene was wild and grand. 
joy and gladness, exhausted all forms of expression with shouts of praise to joys and tears. Uh, what a joy it is to be freed from oppression, from, to be freed from the oppression of sin and Satan and death. For those who have trusted in Christ, no longer enslaved to the wages of our sin, but freed by grace. For these Israelites in Isaiah's day, they, they had been oppressed by Egypt. They were soon to be oppressed by the Assyrians. Then it was going to be the Babylonians. Then it was going to be the Persians. Then the Greeks. Then the Romans. Uh, in this life, oppression is always on a relative scale. Oh, but in the new heavens and new earth, all oppression will finally and truly be done with. God's promise of light and salvation means the end of the oppressor's rod. It means the end of war, verse 5 says. And that's why God's people have joy. Yet, if you've been tracking with us, uh, we still don't know how the Lord will bring this light and salvation to his people, right? I'm sure he'll bring them out of gloom. He'll put an end to their oppressors. But how? Verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It might seem strange that a child's birth should bring such a radical and positive change. Yet what's true for an individual family can, of course, be true even for the nation. So, so notice first that it says, to us, a child is born. That's really interesting. Uh, the birth of this child pertains not just to his family, but this child serves the greater nation. And yet this makes sense because why would we rejoice at this son's birth, this baby's birth? Because the government shall be upon his shoulders. He's going to be the king. Well, of course we're happy when the new baby boy, the king is born. His birth is the guarantee of his reign. Uh, notice again, second, to us a son is given. As certainly all children are gifts from the Lord to be received with gratitude and thanksgiving. But there seems to be a special prominence in the giving of this son. It's not just that some lady will have some baby. But just that a son is given to us. Given by whom? Given, it seems, by the Lord for his unique calling and task. And so the government shall be upon his shoulder. Where previously the oppressor's rod was on the nation's shoulder, here the government will be upon the child's shoulder. He will bear the burden of it. And as ruler, he will bless, not weigh down and destroy the people. He will be a good and just and righteous king. And then we come to the four amazing names of the coming Savior. Four amazing descriptions, kind of like a, a diamond, as it were. You can look at it from different angles of the birth of Jesus and who he is. What, what do we learn about our Lord and Savior in this verse? Well, first, he is the wonderful counselor. To, to be the king, to have the government upon his shoulders required incredible counsel and discernment and judgment. Indeed, that was the supreme responsibility for the king. He had to be wise so that he could legislate the law, 
execute it and interpret and apply the law. Uh, so there was no separation of powers in ancient Israel, right? You didn't have three different branches. You didn't have the executive branch, the legislative branch, judicial branch. No, you got one guy doing it all. It's really important that he knows what to do, that he have wisdom. For this king, as one commentator put it, he would always know what to do. His counsel was always wonderful and right. While King Solomon had previously occupied the place of of seer and sage to the nation, this coming king would be greater still. And so the Lord Jesus says of himself in Matthew 12, the queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, one greater than Solomon is here. Brothers and sisters, what a comfort and joy it is to know that our king is a good and wise king. All his judgments are right. All his laws are true. Whatever he commands us is for our good. I trust that when somebody gives you commands in this life, one of the questions in the back of your mind is, is this really a good idea? Whether it's your boss or it's someone in your family, uh, whether it's a politician or whomever it is, when somebody says, hey, you have to do this, kind of instinctively our reaction is, "Eh, do I? Is this a good idea? Can we really trust that you are looking out for my best interest? Oh, friends, with God, we don't have to have that question. We shouldn't have that question. He is wise. His counsel is good and right and worth trusting. We take comfort knowing that God's commands are good. We should also take comfort in knowing that Christ's providences are wise. How discouraging and frightening would it be if the Lord of all history were a fool? For him to make mistakes and to judge incompetently and unfairly. To have omnipotent power, but childlike wisdom. Praise God, Jesus is the wonderful counselor who knows and applies and lives and commands God's law perfectly. Second, we see that the son who's given is called mighty God. Uh, Here is an assertion Nothing less than an assertion of Jesus' deity, his divinity. As we read in our historic confession, what Dave led us through, Jesus is both truly God and truly man. From eternity past, Jesus is the word of God, the mighty God. And in approximately 4 BC, in the little town of Bethlehem, God became man. Deity put on humanity. Jesus assumed our nature. The immortal God put on mortality so that we might obtain immortality and life. The mighty God who created and sustains and subdues all things became an infant lowly. Sometimes this truth, this doctrine is known as the hypostatic union. That in the one person of Jesus Christ, there are two natures, truly God and truly man. All right, so this means Jesus wasn't part God, part man. He's not a mixture, like some kind of cyborg, or a God-like man, or a man-like God. No, here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, 400 years ago. Okay, language is a little tricky, but hang in there, it's good. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, 
with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Friends, this is the miracle that we celebrate at Christmas. That there was the fullness of God in helpless babe. That in Jesus, poor and uneducated and persecuted and helpless lay the mighty God. Now, if you can't get your mind fully around that, uh, join the club. The incarnation is a mystery to be adored, not a problem to be solved. Okay, so if you go, well, Scott, how, like, how does that really work? I don't know, but it happened. It really happened. In Christ, we see true God and true man. And actually, all of this makes sense in light of all the promises God had been making up until the birth of Christ. Remember in Genesis 3.15, it was humanity that sinned, and so God promised there's going to be a human savior, right? It's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's going to be a human savior. But then through lots and lots of chapters of the Bible, God keeps saying things like, I will save you. I will deliver you. I will rescue you. I and I alone am savior and there is no other. And so we're left wondering, like last week, which is it? You know, will God save us or will we, be, will we have a human deliverer? And in Jesus, we see that it is both. Jesus is the mighty God. And so brothers and sisters, again, praise God that our savior is not weak. It would do us no good to have a king who only wanted to help us, but was too impotent or incompetent to do anything about it. You know, because as we we've considered our problems weren't small. If they were small, we could fix them. You know, surely someone in humanity would be smart enough or strong enough or funny enough or insightful enough to deliver us from our sin and bondage. Yet our problem was not small, but massive. It required nothing less than God's almighty arm to be bared for us and for our salvation. And so we see third that this son to be born is the everlasting father. Everlasting meaning eternal. But sometimes people have been tripped up here. They'll ask, is this verse saying that God the father became incarnate? Is Isaiah confusing the persons of the Trinity and denying that the son, it was the son who became flesh? Well, no. No, no Isaiah is not talking about the persons of the Trinity. And that's not why he uses this phrase. The title that he's referring to, it's not the relationships within the triune God, but it's the way that a king relates to his people. So in the ancient Near East, kings would regularly conceive of themselves and be conceived of as fathers to the nation. And so it is with Christ. He is our brother and our companion and our friend. That's true. But he's also the everlasting father to his people. Like a father, he teaches us God's word. Like a father, he commands us with justice and righteousness. Like a father, he comforts us in our weaknesses. Like a father, he provides for our needs. Like a father, he shelters us 
with his presence. You know, you could summarize the job description of a father in four words. Love, serve, provide, protect. Or you could, sh- you could summarize it in one word, to shepherd. As king, Jesus both shepherds and acts as a father towards his people. And so, friends, I asked it last week, but I'll ask it again. Who is looking out for you? Who is your leader, your father? Who is your shepherd? Uh, What a comfort it is to know that Christ is the everlasting and eternal father of his people. Because fathers don't serve out of mere duty, right? When I go to the RMV, they serve me. They provide for me. They kind of protect me. They They don't love. It's purely a transactional relationship. But not so with a father. See a father lovingly kiss his children goodnight. See him work late to provide for his family. See him correct his children with sternness and with tenderness. See him delight in his daughter's laugh. See him rejoice in his son's presence. In all these things, we are reminded of God's grace, the way that Christ feels for his people his love and care. Brothers and sisters, praise God. Christ loves to care for his people. To those of you who may not have had the best fathers, uh, don't let the fatherhood of God or the paternal care of Christ be misinformed by the sins of your biological father. Instead, look to God as your father and see how he cares for you. Look to Christ and his benevolent provision as the model to emulate. And so we come to the final name attributed to this son. He will be called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. It's hard to overstate the beauty and the glory of this title. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because he was the man of peace who came to bring us peace. For it was peace that we lost in the Garden of Eden. We had no peace with ourselves, nor with others, nor with creation, nor with God himself. We had no shalom. And so Christ's mission was to restore our peace. You know, Romans 5 describes our natural state as being weak, ungodly, sinner, enemies. That's how you were born. A weak, ungodly, sinner, enemy. And yet, if you're a Christian, Romans 5 also says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so how in the world do we go from being enemies of God to being at peace with him? What happened to bridge that gap? Well, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, it wasn't simply or merely his example or teaching. Okay, so one mistake from the Advent season would to think would be to think, hey, Jesus came into the world, he was born to save people, so I don't need to do anything. I don't need to believe in him because he just saved everybody. Another mistake would be to say, yeah, his coming to earth just kind of accomplished salvation. That was, he just came to earth to demonstrate his humility. That's kind of the end of the story. Well, no, friends, it wasn't his birth per se that brought us peace. What does Colossians 1.20 state? That Christ made peace 
by the blood of his cross. The irony is that the prince of peace to bring us peace, well, it required him to be put to death, that he should suffer for our sins on the cross, that this long-promised king and savior who is totally innocent, totally righteous, that he should die in our place as our substitute so that we might now have peace with God. So this Christmas season, don't wax eloquent about peace and joy and goodwill towards men merely at this horizontal level. For if we are to celebrate the birth of Christ, the Prince of Peace, we must recognize that it was not merely his incarnation, but it was his blood that brought us peace. And so you can get in on this peace, not by earning your way to deserve Jesus' sacrifice, but as that Romans 5 passage states, by being justified by faith. That is by putting your trust in Christ on the merits of his work and not on the merits of yours. God will no longer count your sins against you for Christ has already paid for him. You know, that's why Paul always begins his letters in the New Testament. Grace and peace. Hey, Philippians, Philippians, grace and peace. Colossians, grace and peace. Hey, Philemon, hey guys, grace and peace. You know, you kind of like read that in your Bible reading and you know, ah, it's customary, kind greeting of Paul, but you know, let's just kind of get on to the good stuff. But friends, grace and peace is the heart of the gospel. Because of God's grace in Christ, we now have peace. And it just kind of marks all our relationships. Hey, never forget, because of the grace of God, Dave, you have peace with God. Never forget, Margaret, that because of the sacrifice of Christ, you have peace with God. Uh, don't let anything else crowd out that central fact because of what Christ has done. Friends, if you would know the joy of Christmas, trust in Christ. Believe in him, the Prince of Peace, who died for your sins so that you too can have this peace. And so we come to our final verse in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, here's yet another promise of the long-awaited Davidic Messiah, the son of David. He's, even as we considered in the Gospel of Mark, even as we considered from Genesis 3, even as we saw from Ezekiel 34, I trust you see that this is a thread running through Scripture. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic king who ushers in an eternal kingdom of rest and peace to God's people, even as he vanquishes God's foes. To say that Christ's government knows no end is to state that on the last day, there will be no more rivals, no more enemy kingdoms, no more rebels. And thus, there will be peace. Friends, can you imagine what heaven is like? With no hatred and no violence, no wars, nor prospect of war, all of God's enemies deposed and defeated, no strife or anger there, no backstabbing or fear of rejection, only love and unity and peace. 
And so in the meantime, now that Christ has reconciled us to God and we have peace with him, well, the natural result is that we seek peace amongst ourselves, amongst one another, right? In heaven, it will be a perfect peace. But until then, for those who are under Christ's kingship, his government, well, now, as Romans 12 says, we should live peaceably with all, so far as it depends on you. You know, so in your neighborhood and in your work with Christians and non-Christians alike, we should be peacemakers. Uh, we should be those who, who seek for unity and harmony, not discord and division. As Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Trinity Church of Bedford, one of the most compelling witnesses to the truth and beauty of Christ, the Prince of Peace, is that we be a people of peace. You know, we want our collective life together to be like a foretaste of heaven. Uh, because conversely, right, the, kind of the opposite is that the, the divisions here, well, that that would somehow testify against the Prince of Peace. That's why Satan, one of his chief tactics and goals is to divide local churches, to have people warring and fighting and bickering and gossiping and slandering over the smallest things. I, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Christ himself is our peace who's made Jews and Gentiles one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He came near and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were, to those who were near. Friends, if Christ can bring Jews and Gentiles and put them in the same church in the first century AD, well, then we can live at peace. Well, we can have peace and harmony and unity because Christ is our shared savior. Uh, Christ is what we have in common. And so, brothers and sisters, in a church filled with imperfect sinners, including an imperfect pastor, uh, let's keep short accounts with one another. Uh, forgive one another as you have been forgiven. Assume the best about one another's motives. Pursue peace, for that is why Christ came. And yet, we would be remiss if we forgot to mention the complementary aspect of Jesus' reign, Right? As king, he rules with justice and righteousness. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain learned that peace must not come at the expense of justice and righteousness. Yet, sadly, the fact is that you can walk into many supposed churches today where there's the appearance of peace. Uh, people agree to disagree, they don't fight about their differences. Yet, these religious communities have only obtained a superficial peace for it's come at the cost of truth and righteousness. In Christ's kingdom, peace is not at odds with justice and righteousness. It's the natural result of his rule and his reign. And so you notice that second to last line. This king, Christ, will rule forevermore. You know, sometimes people say to me, all things must come to an end. And I want to point them to this verse. Friends, the rule and reign of Christ, the, the justice and peace that it brings, it will never end. You know, like think about some of the best memories of your own life. I think about the things you most enjoy. You go to Disney with your family, uh, singing with the saints, sweet communion with God in prayer, uh, laughter with your family around the dinner table. It is true. These things will end one day. Oh, but Christ's rule in his kingdom will know no end. And again, what will that be like? 
to have no fear about the future, no regrets about time misspent, no doubts about trials yet unforeseen, perfect peace. And so as we conclude, you know, how do you know that this will happen? The truth is that if such a utopia were left in merely human hands, it would surely and quickly end in tragedy and heartbreak. We are frail and fickle, foolish and false. And so praise be to God. Verse seven concludes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Friends, praise God. God says, I got this. And what good news that is. Let's go to the Lord now in the joy and peace, knowing that Christ will one day return and usher in this eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel that you would send your son that by the blood of his cross to, to ransom us, sinners, enemies, weak and ungodly. We praise you that by the blood of his cross, we now have peace with you. Our biggest problem has been solved and we look forward to an eternity of Christ's rule and reign. We pray that his rule and reign in our hearts and in our church, in our communities, in this nation, in the world would grow and grow. Uh, that more of his love and justice and righteousness and peace would be known to ourselves and to those around us. Would you cause us to walk in light of that peace? Would you help us now? We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.